0: We've been talking a lot about how important it is to come before the Lord and to have a meaningful time of prayer, a meaningful time in your word, uh, so that you can take the fruit of that into your own lives. The passage that I'm going to have us look at this morning, we're going to look at the first 12 verses of Psalm 139. It helps us understand how it is, it's a biblical basis for the things that we need to do in our prayer life before God. We've been talking about how important it is to have a prayer life that is uh, significant and that is intimate with the Lord, and this passage gives us the basis for that. So I'm going to read the first six verses and then make some comments on that, and hopefully that's encouraging to us as to how to conduct ourselves when we have our Bibles open and our eyes closed before the Lord. David writes, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. David starts out in verse 1. And he's speaking of how God knows us and what kind of God God is. God is a God who searches out his own people. He examines them and he knows them. And then David goes on to describe how it is that God knows us and the details that God knows us. He knows when we sit down and he knows when we rise up. So he knows what we're doing in the privacy of our own homes. But he doesn't just know about our movements, our comings and our goings. When we look at verse 2, he says, You understand my thought from afar. God knows not only what we're doing when we move around in our homes and when we get stand up and we sit down, but God knows what we're thinking while we do those things. He doesn't just know our thoughts there. He knows our motivations for these things. He scrutinizes our path and our lying down. So our path describes what we do throughout the day, where we go, what we do, who we encounter, how we conduct ourselves during that, and what is our condition when we end our day and we lay down. He knows everything about us. He even knows what we say. He knows it all. There's nothing hidden from God. So we see here some real opportunity to worship the Lord. There is nobody else in all of our experience that knows us the way God does. That knows every one of our movements, that knows every one of our thoughts and our affections, that knows every one of our words, everything we do for all of those things. He knows that. And that is a really, really praiseworthy thing to lift before the Lord. Uh, We're sitting there with our Bible open. We've got our, our eyes closed. We're praying. It is so helpful for us to worship God by saying, you know me better than I know myself. You know exactly why it is that I do everything that I do. So God is worthy of our praise, and and David tells us that in the first uh, four verses of Psalm 139. It also gives us an opportunity to confess before the Lord. It's so helpful to know that God knows what we know because that compels us to just be honest with him with what he already knows about us. An essential part of our relationship with God and our conversation with God is us agreeing with God about what he already knows to be true about us. And so there's a freedom, there's a release when we actually come before the Lord and say, Lord, you know all these things. You know what I did yesterday. You know what I'm uh, going to do today. And I confess those things before you. For those things that are pleasing and honoring to the Lord, just praise him for the grace that he gives you to do those things. All of those things were by him. For those things that are sinful and that are dishonoring to him, that is an opportunity to confess to him what we have done, agree with him about the rightness and the goodness of his ways. So there's what David is showing us here are opportunities to praise the Lord and to confess before the Lord. But as we read verses 4 and 5, we see opportunities to thank the Lord. Uh, When David says, uh, sorry, verses 5 and 6, You have enclosed me behind and before. What that is saying is that God has, there there is no chance for us to extend beyond God's knowledge of us. There is no opportunity for us to stray out of God's sight. There is no way for us to extend ourselves beyond what God has control over. And David says, you laid your hand upon me. God's guiding hand, God's providential hand, God's purposes are at work in David. And David knows that those things are good. He contemplates those things and he says, what God is going to do and what he is doing when his hand is upon me is too wonderful for me. I can't grasp the full scope, the full content of what God is going to do in my life. So there's opportunity for thanksgiving there, that God has plans for us that are better, that are higher, that are greater than the plans that we have for ourselves. I'm looking forward to what I'm going to do the rest of this day, and I have a very human view of that. God has his divine view of what he's going to do for us. If we follow on down through verses 7 through 12, we we see other ways to thank God and praise God. In verse 7, there is no place that we can go that is apart from him and that is beyond him. In verses 8 and 9, he gives us more detail about that. God resides in heaven and he knows everything about the heavenly realm, but he also knows about the remotest part of the sea. Even there, your hand will lead me. Wherever we go, God's hand leads us. And so that extends into any kind of circumstance we have, whether it relates to our health, whether it relates to our finances, whether it relates to how things are going for us at work or relationships in our lives, God's hand will lead us. And the reason why He can lead us in those things is because He is already there in those things. He is at work in the economic system we find ourselves in today. He is at work in each and every one of the companies that we all work for. He is at work in the medical situations that we find ourselves in. He is there in all of those things. So we can thank God for all of those things. I really appreciate verses 11 and 12. David says, If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, if my life is too much for me, uh, and the light around me will be night, if I find myself in a situation that I am unable to navigate because I can't see things clearly, I can't see things well, David gives the assurance there in verse 12, Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. That tells us that when the, the circumstances of our lives are challenging, when we don't know how to function in those circumstances, when we can't see them clearly for what they really are, God understands every single detail of those things. and we can thank him and we can praise him and we can trust him in those things. So my heart this morning for all of us, for myself as well, is that when we sit down with our Bibles and we want we know we need to be praying to prepare our hearts, But this passage gives us a biblical basis for how it is that we can thank God, how it is that we can worship God, why we thank him, why we worship him, why we should confess to him because he already knows all of those things about us. So my prayer is that that is encouraging to you guys, that you would be blessed by that, that that would steer you and guide you and encourage you, especially over the next four weeks before we meet again on the 14th of January, that um, you would remember that, that God is there near you Especially in the situations that come in the holidays, maybe we have more time at home because we might have less time at work and we might have relationships with with family that we don't see a lot or whatever else, uh, that we can remember these things and we can thank God that He will lead us through every circumstance we find ourselves in. So I hope that's an encouragement to you guys. Well, this morning lesson is about the deacon qualifications. and you find deacons, At many churches in the valley, you look around the valley, you find uh, some kind of leadership structure that involves men who serve as deacons. And uh, it's very helpful for us to have a clear understanding of what scripture says deacons are, why a church needs deacons, and uh, how they function here at this church. Uh, So what we're going to do is we're going to start by turning our Bibles to Acts chapter 6, and we are going to see the context where the deacon service is first mentioned in the church. So what has happened is the church has been formed and birthed in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and the church has begun to grow, and it is growing rapidly. And the church was gathering together on a frequent basis, and they were fellowshipping together, and they were eating meals together, and the church was really strengthening. But it didn't take long before the need for oversight of daily activities would become very, very apparent. And in this particular situation, what had happened was that there were Greek women, women from a Greek background, Who had converted to Judaism and they were following Christ now, and they were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So, what we're going to do is we're going to read uh, Acts chapter 6, the first few verses, and we'll see the situation, and then we'll make some observations about deacon leadership at the church. So, Luke writes Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows, the Hellenistic widows, the Greek widows, were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the 12 apostles summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and Philip and Procurus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And then in verse seven, we see the word of God kept on spreading And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So what we have here, as you look in verses 2 and 3 and following, is that the church is summoned together, and servant leadership has been appointed by the elders. The elders directed those within the church to select men from among them, and there were requirements that were put in place on these men. These needed to be men who were men of good reputation in verse 3. They were full of the spirit and of wisdom. So there's a layer of servant leadership that's been appointed by the elders. The elders laid hands on them in verse 6. And they were appointed to specific ministry needs. And the reason why they did all of that was so that the church as a whole would be more effective with the gospel. The purpose was not specifically just to attend to the distribution of food. The the purpose as a whole was to make the church more effective with the gospel, and you see that in verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading. The work of the deacons was very, very essential toward the word of God spreading. So the qualifications of these men in verse 3 are that they must be men of good reputation, that they must be men full of the Spirit, and they must be men of wisdom. Uh, deacon service often is, is viewed in terms of the task that the man is doing. The man is doing a task, but it isn't a task for just any warm body. These men must be men of sound biblical character. They must have good reputation in the body. They must have uh, They must have a fullness of the Holy Spirit in them. They must be full of the Spirit, obviously believers, converted men. They must be men of wisdom. And so the deacon is a man who has a task but his role is much more than a task and his role really is to advance the gospel mission. He advances the gospel mission by performing the task. What we're going to see is that the entire church is all about advancing the gospel mission of Jesus Christ. The entire church is advancing the gospel mission of Christ and to see that we're going to turn to one of Paul's letters. He writes a letter to the church in Philippi so let's turn to Philippians 1. And we're going to see the way that the entire church is being used in the advancement of the gospel. So Paul is on his second missionary journey when he sees the church in in Philippi for the first time. And he writes to them later. He writes to them from prison, very likely in Rome. And he says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, in verse 1. So he's addressing saints. He's addressing the overseers and the deacons that are included in that group. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And then in verse 5. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So all the saints in verse 1. It's a comprehensive introduction to everybody in the church. All the saints in the church. And that includes the overseers, and that includes the deacons. So the overseers are the pastors, the elders, the overseers, the shepherds. And then you have the deacons, and then you have collectively all of the saints. So there's three groups of people. There's one group that includes everybody, that's the saints. And he's got the, the pastoral leadership. And he's got a servant layer called the deacons here. And all of them are in, in view here when he talks about your participation in the gospel. So every single person in the church is to be used in advancing the gospel mission of Christ. All three groups are actively functioning in gospel ministry. And if any one of these three groups is missing, uh, the church will lose its effectiveness in its function with the gospel. The church needs leadership. It needs servant leadership and it needs saints in the church. The elders are leading the church by teaching the word and praying. The deacons are serving, in the case that we just looked at in Acts chapter 6, they're they they're serving in the distribution of food. And the disciples are worshiping and they're sharing all things together and they're being useful in drawing people in. And the result of all of this together, when it works together, is that the church is growing. And if any one of these three is missing, the church's effectiveness is, is hampered and hindered in advancing the gospel. And so here at Grace Bible Church, the heart of the elders, is to see all three groups functioning really, really well. We love for everybody who is sitting in these chairs and in the chairs in NGM uh, to be people who are functioning well with the gospel. And that includes the deacon leadership and the elder leadership at this church. And this is a significant role. Um, as we saw, there were, there were requirements that were placed on the men in Acts chapter six. When Paul writes to Timothy in his letter in 1 Timothy uh, in chapter three, He is so concerned about the the deacon role itself that he provides specific qualifications for these men. There are requirements for these men that must be met by men who are in this role. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look there and we're going to spend most of the rest of our time there as we look at this this morning. Paul again is writing to Timothy and what he has here are a list of qualifications that must be met in these Mm -hmm. men. So we'll just read the passage and we'll move on from there. Paul writes, uh, starting in 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid game, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So what we're going to look at here is that we see that the When we view deacons, we see the importance of tested and approved character. We're going to take a look at verse 10 to see that. But the description of a deacon here, as we see this, it goes on from verse 8 through verse 13. This is a much longer, much more comprehensive set of requirements that are being placed in front of the man than was placed in Acts chapter 6. If we look back at Acts chapter 6, we just had three requirements they must be men that are of good reputation. They must be full of the Spirit, and they must be of wisdom. And so we ask ourselves, well, is Paul changing the approach here? Is he changing the requirements for being a deacon in a church? And the answer to that is yes, and the answer to that is no. Um, We're going to look at the case for no first. Because what we're looking at here is, even though it's a much longer description, the kind of man that's being described here in 1 Timothy 3 is the same kind of man who's being described in Acts chapter six. So the man who is full of wisdom and full of the spirit in Acts chapter six is the same man who meets the requirements that are spelled out in in 1 Timothy three, verse eight through 13. So it's the same kind of man, but there is a distinction here. There's a difference that's being made. Um, And what we have here is that the early church and the first generation of this church had a more specific, refined conviction about two things. That is the spiritual character of the man and the evaluation of these things. And so to see that, we'll focus in on verse 10. Um, They're going to be looking at his character and the way that he's evaluated. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach. So the tested and approved character sandwich is what we're looking at here. What you have on the first hand is a man who is tested. And at the very end of the verse, you have a man who is approved. Um, He's beyond reproach. And if those things are true, if he's tested and he's proven to be beyond reproach, then he can serve as a deacon. So what we have here is the idea of having a, a tested and approved character in a man. And we'll take a look at what it means to be tested first. Testing, um, everybody in the context who read this letter knew that Paul was speaking um, of of evaluating a person. But it was the same term that was used to evaluate coins to determine whether that coin was a true coin or whether that coin was a counterfeit coin. And there were temperature requirements that were placed on a coin, so you could tell whether it was uh, genuine or not. And there were time requirements over a coin. It, it It must be the kind of coin that didn't disintegrate over time. So it had to be able to withstand temperature, and it had to be able to perform well over time in order to be considered a real coin. The same thing is true about a deacon. He is a man who must be tested. He must be able to meet the requirements, and he must be able to meet those requirements over a long period of time. So there's an observation relationship in place between the elders of the church and the deacon. And what they're doing is they're examining a man to see that he's tested. Does he prove to be a man of character that is sustained over a period of time. And so when you look and you evaluate an elder or a deacon, you you take and you look at the man and you say, has has time and experience tested that man? And has that, that testing proven that the man is above reproach? And it's very important to notice what is not being said here. What is not being said about a deacon is a man who becomes a deacon on the job, you make him a deacon, and he becomes qualified in that character on the job. These are things that need to be evident in a man before he's assigned the role or the task of being a deacon. And that's what the elders try to do here at Grace Bible Church. We currently have eight deacons, and we have a couple of men in the queue as we're looking at their applications. But we wanna be close enough to these men beforehand where we know them well. We observe them here at BUILD. We observe them in their small groups. We observe them as they interact with the body on Sunday mornings and on different occasions throughout the week. And we get to know how this man functions in terms of being tested and approved. Does he prove himself to be the kind of man over time that um, can be trusted with a role here at church? We see what the man does here at BUILD. We see how he functions in in other areas of service like Next Generation Ministries and other things like that. That gives us an opportunity to, to evaluate the man because he's He's demonstrating um, the testing that is taking place, and he's proving himself to be uh, a man who is above reproach in that testing. So that happens all the time here at church. That's, that's happened for uh, the entire time that I've been an elder here. We've, we've seen a lot of men come into deacon service, and they've entered into service after having been observed and watched for a very, very long time. They get an application. They fill it out. Um, the elders examine the man well, because we want to be faithful to the Word of God. Paul also mentions that the man must be above reproach or beyond reproach in verse 10. And that is what we view as an umbrella summary characterization of the man and a qualification. What that really is getting at is that there's no stain on the man's character. There's no real disgrace that can be attached to the man. And that um, any charge against him that relates to his character really won't stick because of the kind of man that he is. And that same qualification of being above reproach or beyond reproach uh, is also present for the qualifications that are placed on elders, which come in the immediately preceding seven verses, uh, verses one and following in 1 Timothy 3. So both an elder and a deacon need to be a man who his character really is beyond reproach. That doesn't mean that he's not an increasingly sanctified man who's, who's becoming less and less characterized by sin, but it means that, any staining character charge against him just won't have any merit or won't have any basis in it. So that's the kind of man we're looking for here. But if you notice, when you look at the, the elder qualifications, and starting in verse 1 and following, you see that above reproach is the first qualification that's listed. Now, that's kind of an umbrella qualification. He needs to be above reproach, and then there's several other qualifications that follow after that. I believe there's 14 of them. But here in, in the qualifications for the deacons, you'll notice that it's in the middle of the description. It's in verse 10. The qualifications start in verse 8 and go all the way through to verse 13. And this is described in verse 10. And so we ask ourselves why it's in the middle here and it's at the beginning in the elder qualifications. Is it, is it that it's not as important or it just sits in line with all the rest of them? Well, the idea here is that it's not at the beginning and it's not at the end, it's right in the middle. And the idea here is that it becomes more difficult to separate the uh, testing and the above approach from every other character qualification that he needs to be tested along with all of the other things. Um, there's no difference between being tested for being a man who's not addicted to much wine. He needs to be all of those things in place. They all need to be true about him before he begins being um, his service as a deacon. So he's a man who's um, demonstrating himself over a period of testing, and he, and he demonstrates to be that his character is above reproach in all the things that he does. So that's, that's the kind of man that he is. He's going to be tested, and he's going to be above reproach in all of that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through these, these character qualifications of the man, and we're going to take time to look at what each one of them means, and we're going to look at why that is so important in each one of these things. And that will help us appreciate... Uh, the role itself, and, and what it also help us do is it'll help us know how we can be praying for the men who serve as deacons at this church. And so, the first thing that, that Paul says in verse 8 is that he must be a man of dignity. You look at that and you think, Well, uh, I've got a picture in my mind of what it means to be a man who's of dignity. What God is getting at here is he is talking about a man who has a serious bearing in life because of a serious mind and character. His bearing in life is serious because his mind is serious and his character is serious. Sometimes when we think about being a dignified man, we think about a man who's well-dressed and his hair always looks good and everything else and he uses big words and everything else. And that's not what we're getting at here. Um, What we're getting at here is a a man who has a serious disposition about his life. He has a serious disposition about his life because... He's got a serious mind, and he's a man of serious character. And that comes from reading his Bible. His mind is informed with truth from God's word, and he lives that out. And so he has a serious disposition about his circumstances. He takes things carefully. He takes things seriously. He's not a man who is stuffy. He's not a man who is joyless. He's a man who's full of joy. He's easy to engage with, but he looks at life with a serious disposition. Um, It's the opposite of somebody who is always characterized by being silly or being flippant or who is always making light of a situation. And this is so important. He needs to be a man of of dignity because we're going to find ourselves with needs all the time. Uh, Someone in the body will come up to someone who's a deacon or will somehow get attached to a deacon or get put in touch with a deacon and they'll explain their situation. They need help in something. They need wisdom with something. And it's very, very important that this man can listen and he's thinking rightly when the need arises in the church. Um, He doesn't want to view people's needs and people's uh, situations casually. He doesn't want to view them flippantly. He wants to see them for the weight that they have. And so a man who's a a deacon needs to be a man who's full of dignity for those reasons. So there's a a couple of ways we can examine ourselves as we consider becoming a man who's a man of dignity. And one of those ways is to examine the tone of our conversation that we have with others. We can ask ourselves, what is my tone like when I'm talking to the guys that I fellowship with here at church? Uh, Is my tone a tone that is characterized by being sober minded and full of dignity? Or am I always making light of a situation? And that's challenging for me. I need to keep that in front of myself. There's times when I evaluate myself and I think, I need to work on that. I need to be more mindful of that in my life. Another question is, can people tell that I think seriously about the circumstances that the Lord has placed me in? The way I describe my circumstances, the way I think about them, the way I I navigate them, can people tell that I think carefully and seriously about those things? Another one is, when I'm in a conversation with a friend here at church, am I asking questions that get to the heart of a matter? A good deacon at this church, he asks questions when there's needs that are arise, so that he can understand the situation well and occasionally bring that situation to the elders and work with the elders on that. So a deacon needs to be a man of dignity. It's really important that he's a man of dignity. But he also needs to be a man who is not double-tongued in verse 8. And this is really important. Uh, the word double-tongued means literally he has two words. He must not be a man who has two words. He must not be a man who has two messages. What that means is that there's really no discrepancy uh, between what he says in one context to what he says about that same thing in another context. There's no discrepancy whatsoever. Everybody gets the same message about the same subject regardless of who they are. And this is why this is really important. You think about what a a deacon does. A deacon in many ways is a liaison between the body and the leadership of the church. Deacons in NGM come to the leadership of the church all the time and say, this is what's happening in NGM, we need more this or we need more that because of this, we need more space, we need more chairs, we need more time, we need more resources or whatever else. A deacon role often involves closer contact with the body than the the elders have. Um, And what would happen if a deacon was a man who had two messages? When he's interacting with someone in the body and they're explaining a situation to him or they see a situation. And he's talking about that that situation with that person or that group of people in the body. And he has one message for them. And then when he comes to either an elder or a, a group of elders, and describes the situation to the elders, what would happen if he didn't have the same message? What would happen if he wasn't representing the same concern? What would happen if he misrepresented the, the concern in some way or another for whatever reason? Now, the elders wouldn't understand the problem. They wouldn't understand the situation, and they couldn't provide the right guidance and leadership for the church in that area. This is really important when it comes to particular deacon roles such as benevolence or other areas like that. Uh, the man who's reporting the need, the deacon who's bringing that need to the leadership of the church, needs to give the leadership of the church the exact same message that he informed the, the church that he was going to give them leadership. Uh, apart from that, the, the, the church won't function well because they won't be meeting the real need of the church. And what that will end up doing is that will end up hindering our gospel testimony here. So that's the kind of man that, that a deacon needs to be. He needs to be a man who has one message on the subject and his message doesn't really change. And so questions we can ask ourselves about that is does my account of a situation or an occasion change as my audience changes? When I'm recalling an event or a circumstance to one friend Does the way I describe that change when I recall that to another friend? Do I have a different standard of accuracy when I'm explaining something to my wife than I have when I'm explaining it to a friend? Do I use different vocabulary to describe it? Am I less careful with my words? Uh, A deacon needs to be a man who has one message. He has one tongue when he's relating needs, when he's doing anything else. The most important question to ask in all of this is, do I remember who my primary audience is in all of my conversations? If we remember that our primary audience is the one who actually sees inside of our mind, sees inside of our heart, who knows everything, then it's gonna be much easier for us to have the same message with whatever strata we're working in at the church. If our primary audience is the Lord and we act and we think like that, then um, we're going to be inclined to have the same message. So, a deacon needs to be a man who has one message. He has one tongue, and then people can trust him with that one message. But he also, in verse 8, needs to be a man who is not addicted to much wine. What we're getting at here is um, a man who is characterized by repeatedly and consistently turning his mind to the use of alcohol. He's always thinking about acquiring and consuming alcohol. Paul uses the word addicted here, and it's the present tense which gets to the the act of something being very ongoing, very habitual in his life. And what's in focus here is the man's thought process. It's a man whose thoughts and process and his judgments are continually influenced by the pursuit of some kind of beverage, some kind of drink. And a man who is occupied with the thought of how to bring alcohol into his life, that's what he's always thinking about. And that clouds his judgment on other things. And there's there's two parts to this phrase, and they both need to be properly emphasized. Uh, Not addicted to, in other words, it's something he's always thinking about, and much wine. Notice that that Paul says he's not addicted to much wine. So Paul is talking about a, a regular ongoing process in the mind where we're thinking about this, And he's talking about something that is is occurring in in large quantities in the man's life. So Paul is really warning us to avoid anything that controls our thought process. It doesn't really matter what that thing is, but whatever it is that's controlling our thought process, and he uses alcohol in particular, we need to avoid that. Um, We need to avoid the use of it in such a way where the person is characterized by always thinking about it and it's present in his life in large measure. And the reason why is because that clouds his judgment, that clouds his discernment and his understanding for what is right and what is good. So we need to ask ourselves, um, if I use alcohol, uh, am I evaluating my use of alcohol? Am I using good decision about how much alcohol I use, when I use it, in what context I use it? Another question we can ask ourselves is Do my thoughts regularly involve the consideration of how I'm going to acquire or when I'm going to use my next drink of alcohol? And thirdly, do I know how to use alcohol in a God-honoring way? Open my Bible and read, is my use of alcohol, if I used it, is it characterized by thankfulness? Is it characterized by joy? Is it characterized by contentment? Is it characterized by self-control? All of those things. When a man is using alcohol in, in those, he's not using alcohol in those ways, uh, he's not going to be a man who's careful and cautious in his interaction with the body. So a man who is not addicted to much wine is a man who's well positioned to serve as a deacon in any church. And then Paul talks about another qualification that's important for us to consider. And that is that a deacon must be a man who is not fond of sordid gain. It's loving the gain of wealth in such a way that causes my character to be questioned. This is a person who has fond thoughts of monetary gain from a questionable motive. Even if that way of gaining is is dishonest, the fact that it's dishonest doesn't bother him. That's the kind of man who can't be a deacon. And there's nothing wrong here with monetary gain. There's everything right about monetary gain, but what's at issue here is the motive for that gain. When you have a man whose motives for gain is personal, uh, that man is is not the kind of man who's well positioned to be a deacon. And the reason why that's important is there are several deacon roles that involve the use of money. Um, We have in the past had a deacon role here at Grace Bible Church where the deacon was the deacon over this facility and the pursuit of a facility. We haven't always met here. We did church out of a box for, for 15 years. We moved here in 2015, but from 01 through 14 and into 15, uh, we were a mobile church and we did church out of a box. But during the time that we were looking for a church, we, we enlisted the role and the services of a man who helped us find this this facility. And it was a blessing to us that the man who helped us find this facility was not a man who was personally motivated by the profit that he would gain from the finding of this facility. He was motivated by finding us a facility so we could meet here and do what we're doing today. And we could gather together and we could worship, and he was motivated by finding the right facility for us that came at the right price that that allowed us to move into here and do what we're doing. He was not motivated by personal gain in this. And that man was such a blessing to us and we are so thankful for him. I actually saw him this week. It was a blessing to spend time with him and see that he's, he's a man of godly character. Other areas of the church where, where uh, involved deacon service involve the use of funds, church funds. We have a deacon over benevolence at this church and that man uh, is involved with others. And oftentimes he's involved in meeting the needs of those people and sometimes those needs are financial. And you can imagine what kind of problems you would run into if you have a a deacon who's serving in a role who has, as Judas did, a penchant for benefiting himself personally through his involvement in his ministry with others. Think about the reputation that the church would have because of that if that became ever known, that that somebody was using their role in the church as a means of them personally profiting. Uh, Our role at the church for every one of us is to draw people in here to build them up in the gospel and to send them out and to make them more efficient servants of the Lord, and make them more effective servants of the Lord. Our role is not to draw people in here, and in so doing, uh, to become more wealthy or to benefit in some way because of that. So the gospel ministry will be harmed at this church if we have a man who is fond of sordid gain. So so a deacon must be a man who is not fond of sordid gain. And So we can all ask ourselves things to evaluate when I consider a situation that I'm in, Am I able to divorce any kind of gain that might come from that situation with my real purpose for whatever enterprise that is? Am I able to navigate my way through a situation for the purposes of that, uh, that, that situation and not have my own gain in mind for that? A simple question we can ask ourselves is if you're married, does your wife trust you with your use of funds? Are You consistent with if you say you're going to spend a certain amount on purchasing something, uh, is that typically what you're known to do? Are you good on your word there? And if there's a reason that you need to spend more, uh, are you characterized by having conversations with your wife first? Uh, early on, that was a, an issue of uh, in my marriage, and we actually had to say to ourselves, you know, um, what we're going to do here to help us with this situation is is we're going to set a dollar limit where if there's any expenditure that's above that dollar limit, we need to talk about it first. The reason why we needed to do that was so that we could have good confidence and trust in what we were doing. Um, but a, a man who is a deacon at the church needs to be a man who is trustworthy in the in the, the resources that have been uh, committed to his care and his trust, and that he won't be using those for his own personal gain because it will compromise the ministry of the gospel. There are very few things, uh, probably marital infidelity and a couple others that are more harmful to the church than knowledge that a man who's using church resources for his own personal gain. There are very few things that are more harmful to the gospel than that. So then we move on to verse 9. And Paul has some other qualifications. The deacon must be a man who holds to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. He holds to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So there's an ever-present grasp on what is believed, which causes the conscience to affirm and not condemn the man or his ministry." And so again, here you see the word holding, that's a present tense. This is something that must be ongoing in his life. And what he's holding to is the mystery of the gospel. Um, this is not something that cannot be comprehended. Rather, it's a truth that was unknown but has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So this is a man who understands what was a mystery that now no longer is a mystery. He understands it clearly. And he's talking about the faith and the gospel, the content of what can be believed. And he does this with a clear conscience. Um, It's a gift of God that affirms or condemns. Our conscience is what affirms or condemns. Um, our thoughts, our words, our actions, and our desires. So the way that a man lives out his biblical convictions gives his conscience no opportunity to convict him or accuse him or condemn him in anything that he does. So feed your conscience well, acquaint yourself more and more deeply with the content of the gospel, and then live by it. That's the kind of man who is well positioned to be a deacon at this church. So, questions we can ask ourselves. These are good questions for any man to ask himself at any time. Am I able to articulate the gospel clearly and concisely? You know, someone said, "What's the gospel about in four sentences?" Could I could I explain that? Would it just flow right out of me? Okay, this is what the gospel really is. Um, and then, secondly, does my conscience condemn me in the way that I live out my gospel understanding? What we're going to do now is we're going to jump down to verse 12. We're going to come back to verse 11 and we're going to jump down to verse 12. And now Paul talks about a man who is the husband of one wife. And what we have here is a one woman man. First, we're going to look at what Paul is not saying by the man who's a husband of one wife. Paul is not saying that a man must be married to be a deacon. And he's not saying that the only thing a man needs to be is married and he can be a deacon. And he's not saying that the only thing he must be is a man who is sexually pure only in his deeds. What he is saying here is something about the kind of man who is well qualified to be a deacon. And he's saying that that kind of man is the man who is a one-woman man. It's a man where his affections, his thoughts and his desires are only for his wife. That when he thinks about what is joyful, what is pleasurable, what is satisfying, what is fulfilling, he thinks about his wife. He doesn't be thinking about other people. If this is a man who is not a married man, he's a younger man who's not yet married, it's the kind of man who says, I am going to reserve all of those thoughts for the person that I married, when I am married, I'm not going to entertain those thoughts today. I'm going to entertain those thoughts when the Lord brings me a wife and I'm going to pour those thoughts onto her and nobody else. He reserves his behavior today for the woman the Lord may bring to him in the future. So he's waiting. and He's, he's patiently waiting. So good questions for men to examine themselves with today are questions like this. What is my first thought when... I entertain affectionate thoughts for someone who is not my wife. What is the first thing that I do in response to some thought that occurs to me? How do I respond? Another question is, do I truly understand God's design for intimacy? Do I truly understand that? And for guys who are younger who aren't yet married, should I consider seeking counsel from an older, wiser man at this church? One of the blessings at this church is we've got men from the youngest age to the oldest age in this church. And uh, there was a time at this church when we didn't have that. If you've been around this church for more than 10 years, you know that back in the early 2000s, this church was characterized by an awful lot of young people. But today, we've got an abundance of older, wiser men in this church. So if you're a younger guy, you have an audience of men that you can go to to seek counsel and wisdom on how to go about the process of navigating your life until God brings you uh, a wife. So a deacon needs to be a one-woman man. He needs to be a one-woman man if he's a married man. He needs to be a one-woman man if he's not a married man. But a deacon also needs to be a good manager of their children and their household in verse 12. So this is a man who provides direct and ongoing oversight of his children and his household affairs. Direct and ongoing oversight. Not indirect, not temporary, but direct. It's coming directly from him and it's something that is ongoing and it's oversight he's seeing over. He's in a position where he can see over things. The word manage here means to have charge over. It means to stand before, to stand over, to manage things. He's not doing this from a distance but he's close enough to have intimate familiarity with what's happening with his kids and what's happening with his wife. And you notice again, it's the present tense. It's an ongoing action. It's something he does all the time. He doesn't just do this on Saturday mornings um, at breakfast with his kids. He does this consistently. He's known by doing this. His kids know him to be this kind of man. His wife knows him to be this kind of man. Because the reason why this is important, not only here at Grace Bible Church, but in any church, is that it's only the man who's faithful in the smaller things, and your home is not a small thing, but smaller in terms of number, that a man can be faithful in the larger things. How are you going to effectively manage a ministry with lots and lots of people if you can't manage a couple kids and a wife? If you're not inclined to be a man who manages those things well, you're not going to manage um, a ministry well at all. So there's some good questions for a man to ask himself. He must ask himself, how connected am I to the guidance of my children? Hopefully my children have guidance in this world, but are they getting that from me? How connected am I to the affairs of my house? Do I know what's going on in my house? Um, Or have I relegated that and, and dispatched that task to my wife? Have I parceled off that task and said, you take care of that one, dear. I'll get everything else. Another question is that's actually might be very probing is, if I'm married, how would my wife answer this question about me? Not just what I think, but the one who has eyes into my life that actually sees things that I can't see sometimes, how would she answer that? There's opportunities for single men to consider themselves here as well. Am I on top of the affairs of my own household? If something needs to be repaired, am I the kind of man who can get to that, take care of that, or handle that? Or do those things just kind of hang around for a while? If I'm renting, do I demonstrate good management of my home so that it doesn't compromise my gospel witness? Or do I more inclined to say, well, it's not mine, so I'm not going to deal with it? All of those things have bearing on our gospel witness. And so a man who is um, a good manager of his home is, is well positioned to be a deacon, whether it's here at Grace Bible Church or anywhere else. What we're going to do now is we're going to go back to Verse 11. And we're going to take a look at what Paul says there. He says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate and faithful in all things. First thing we have to do here um, is you need to examine the use of the word women. And there really are two options that we have here in front of us. One is women who are married to men who are serving as deacons. And the other is a woman herself who is serving as a deacon. Here at Grace Bible Church, we really believe that the way to read this is that Paul is describing women who are married to men, and those men are serving as deacons in the church. And really, there are a number of reasons why we we take that view. We're going to walk through those, and then we're going to look at what must be true about those. Um, First is the generic use of the word woman here in the New American Standard that we have. Um, Paul doesn't use a specific title of leadership, such as woman deacon. He's referring to women here. And the natural meaning of the word woman needs to stretch less to refer to wives than you need to stretch the word to refer to uh, deaconess or woman serving as deacon. There's a lot more behind the word deaconess that would distinguish itself from woman than the word wife would distinguish itself from woman. Another reason why we tend to believe that this is um, describing a woman who is married to a man who's serving as a deacon is because of the context where this sits. You notice that Paul starts in verse 8 and he describes through verse 10, he has three verses of description of what a man must be. Then he goes on in verse 12 and 13 and describes what a man must be. This is sitting right in the middle of that. It would be unnatural to inject qualifications for a whole new role in the middle of describing qualifications for a different role. Another reason is that scripture contains no other reference to women deacons. Um, The first identification of women deacons in scholarship is around 230 AD, almost 200 years after this was written. One of the more compelling reasons to see this as describing women who are married to men who are who are deacons is Paul's earlier teaching in the same letter. You just back up a few verses. Look back to chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Many of the deacon roles uh, involve a task, but in those roles, uh, there is clearly leadership that's taking place. And that leadership involves using the word of God as your basis for the decisions that you're making. We have men serving in next generation ministries. And these servants are so helpful to this church. Uh, they do a whole lot of work that goes right under the radar that, that the elders don't see a lot of the times. And you find out what they do. But in, in many cases, they need an awful lot of wisdom. And they bring the wisdom from God's word to bear as they gather the teachers, the NGM instructors together on Sunday mornings before uh, the church service starts. There's a meeting that they have and they lead that. There's teaching there, there's instruction, there's guidance that they provide. That's a role for a man to have over women. And finally, one other reason I'll put in front of you is that the ministry needs, the ministry need would suggest it. You think back to Acts chapter six, the problem was that the Hellenistic women, the Greek women were being overlooked in the service of food Now, if you think of an area where it is catered and custom fit for women to serve, it would be something that has to do with food. But what did the apostles do? They said, appoint seven men. And who are these men? These are men who are full of wisdom. These are men who are full of the spirit. They're men who have good reputation. They appointed men to oversee that role because that was a role that needed leadership. It needed teaching It needed instruction. It needed wisdom. It's not that women don't have wisdom. It's not that women don't have the ability to teach women. But Paul was very kind in pointing out that this is a role for men because he's looking back to the original, realizing that the apostles, they appointed men to oversee that as well. I went through those kind of quickly, but what this really means is that, that the deacon, the man who's well qualified to be a deacon, is the man who leads his wife in such a way that his wife demonstrates the character qualities you see in verse 11. So let's take a look at those. He needs to be a man who leads his wife in such a way that she is dignified and that she is not a malicious gossip, that she is temperate, that she is faithful in all things, that she is trustworthy. He needs to be the kind of man who leads his wife to be a dignified woman, means that she has a serious demeanor, in a household that God has put her in. that she has a serious demeanor about being a wife to her husband. She has a serious demeanor about being a mom to the children that she has had together with her husband. There's nothing silly or flippant about the way she's raising her family. And that is influenced by the kind of man that she's married to. He needs to be the kind of man who is leading his wife to be that kind of woman in his home. a man who's well qualified to be a deacon leads his wife in such a way that his wife is not a malicious gossip. You think about this. uh, In many different cases of deacon service, um, a man is dealing with information about an individual, and sometimes that's sensitive or private information. Well, a husband and a wife are one. And when a husband knows something, um, a lot of times that just gets shared with his wife because they're one. But his wife needs to be a a woman who holds on to that information well. She preserves that information. She keeps that information well. And it doesn't advance that information to the detriment of the church. The husband who is well qualified to be a deacon is a man who leads his wife to be temperate. This is a woman who avoids extremes in her thinking. She's clear-headed in her thinking. It's the same word that's being used for an elder in verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3. He's sober-minded. She's free from clouded thinking that would would come from anything in her life. He leads her in such a way that her pursuits and her activities are things that give her clear thinking so that she can lead their their home when he's at work. She can provide the oversight for her home that is a, a good home. That's important because oftentimes when Uh, a deacon serves in the church, he's meeting the needs of other women in the church. And so it's it's not wise for that man to meet with another woman by himself. It's very helpful if his wife comes with him. And oftentimes his wife is going to be part of the conversation of navigating whatever it is that this particular sheep needs. And she needs to be a woman who's thinking clearly. She needs to be a woman who's thinking biblically. So a husband needs to be the kind of guy who leads his wife to be temperate. He needs to be a guy who leads his wife to be faithful in all things. And she's faithful to him. Their home functions well. Uh, Their home is not going to be functioning well. It's not going to be representative of the work of the gospel in a home if she's unfaithful in her own walk with the Lord, if she's unfaithful in raising her kids, if she's unfaithful in lots of other things. And all of that kind of woman needs to be led by the kind of man that her husband is. Her husband needs to inform her and lead her in that. And she needs to be trustworthy. She needs to be a good holder of the things that are entrusted to her care. She needs to hold her relationships well. She needs to be trustworthy because it reflects on the man that she's married to when she's not trustworthy with her word. And that reflects on the church's choice of that man to be a deacon. And that reflects on the gospel ministry. So for those reasons, a a deacon needs to be the kind of man who will lead his wife in those ways. All of those things advance the gospel. And lastly, and real quickly, uh, fourthly, the deacons, there is a blessed result of being faithful. We look at the deacons and they are highly respected and they are emboldened servants in the mission of the gospel. Let's read verse 13 again. Those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The high standing talks about they, they have a particular place. They have a particular foundation that they serve and it's because they've served well. They appear to others as a man who stands in a place that is a place of integrity before God. So they're viewed as men of integrity but they also um, they obtain for themselves great confidence in the faith. And what this gets to is they are useful and they are effective and they can speak authoritatively about the gospel in the ministry that they have. So that's God's design for the deacon at the church. What I'd encourage all of you men to do is to examine these and just say, how well do I line up with these? Uh, because there might be a day when the leaders of this church come to you and say, would you consider serving in this role? We've been watching you, we've been seeing you, you've proven to be a godly man in 19 different ways and we're just very blessed to have you here. Um, those are the kind of things that, that make this church a, a strong church. If you are in this room and you've served as a deacon at this church, or if you are currently sir, we are so thankful for you. We are so thankful for your tireless service, so thank you. Praise God for you guys. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have been clear with us from your word. You've been clear with us about the role of a deacon. Lord, it is so wise on your part to give us clarity as to how the division of labor needs to take place at a church. And Lord, that you have tasks for men to serve, but Lord, more importantly, in the service of those tasks, they advance the gospel mission. Thank you, Lord, that you've been clear with us about the requirements, the qualifications of a man who fill those roles. I pray for the men here, Lord, uh, that they would be men who first and foremost love you and pursue you diligently, and in so doing, become the kind of man who is well positioned to serve in the church. Lord, thank you for all the men who serve in this church. What a blessing that they utilize their conversations well, that they serve well, that they meet needs, that they love the brothers and the sisters well. Lord, I pray for us as we enter into the Christmas holiday and the Christmas season. I pray for all of us that we would be faithful in meeting alone with you. We would be faithful in taking care of our own heart before you. We would be faithful in praying for ourselves and our household and our church, Lord, so that this church could represent you well. And I pray in Christ's name, amen.